through that time, there are a couple of trends that have been true for just about the whole time. Ways that God has provided for us through moving his people. Uh, One of them we've been talking about a lot lately has been prayer. Uh, When things have been very good, it seems like it's been the result of God moving a few people to pray earnestly here. And when things have been very difficult and then turned around, it's often been because the Lord led someone to lead others to pray and a movement of prayer went through the church. Another one of those that we haven't talked about recently uh, is that for our whole history, there has been a consistency in generous, faithful giving to the church. That date backs all, dates back all the way to 57 or 58 years ago, however long it was, when we first met in a kindergarten classroom, and in our very first worship service, we gave an offering, and half of it went to a missionary that I think was overseas, but I'm not sure, and the other half, $15, went to the pastor who presided over that service. Uh, we gave that offering that day, we gave another one the next week, another one the next week. Pretty soon, it wasn't but a few months before we were able to pay rent on a storefront, and we were meeting in a storefront, and then within just a little over a year, we were buying and settling into a church building of our very own, all funded because God's people gave very faithfully. We were that quickly in our own building. Most church plants don't get to get there that quickly. Since then, the Lord moved us here. We built this building in 1986 and the one across the way there about 10 or 15 years ago. That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the buildings the Lord's allowed us to build because God's people have given faithfully. Never mind hundreds of thousands of dollars that have gone to missions, much of it over Overseas, some of it here in the States. Never mind the help that we've been able to give to the poor. Uh, never mind that when hours were dark and times were difficult, God's people gave, gave faithfully and things began to turn around. Uh, God seems to have worked so powerfully through that legacy that now, those of you who are new here get to pick that up. You get to carry on that baton, so to speak, of this faithful giving that so many around you have done for so long and so many before us have done. Well, we get to pick that up. And so that's why, as we have been going through the book of Genesis, uh, we came two weeks ago to the very first tithe ever recorded in the scriptures. And because of that consistency here, because we've been so faithful to do it for so long, and because it's right there, the very first one, we're going to hit pause again today in our walk through Genesis and just examine this tithe that we watched Abram give. Uh, And we're going to do it a little bit differently than normal. Usually we have one story we're looking at and we get all we can out of one story. Well, Genesis has in it the first tithe ever given and also the second tithe ever given or at least promised. And so we're going to look at both of those today at the same time. Two stories we're going to look at. We'll look at what's similar and common between them and see if we can't discern the true motive behind a godly and faithful tithe. I think this will do a couple of things for you. Uh, For those of you that have faithfully tithed for many years, and I know there are many of you, uh, it gives you an opportunity to ask the question, what's the right reason to do this, and am I doing it for the right reason? That way you can check yourself, make sure you are reaping up great heavenly reward for what you are doing and not missing out by doing it for the wrong reasons. Uh, for others of you, uh, you'll look at your, uh, your account statements and you'll say, we believe in tithing, we believe in giving, but here we are doing our taxes and looking at our giving statement and we're not actually following through on what we believe and there's tension in your heart over that. Uh, this might help resolve some of that and help you understand what's going on. And then those of you that are new to the whole game, thinking about picking it up, or maybe this is your second or third year participating in that kind of activity, I think what we'll talk about will give you a good godly foundation that you can build years of tithing on. Uh, It also will serve toward the end to answer a couple of practical questions that you might have about it. So if you would turn with me to Genesis.
Genesis chapter 14. Our first story is going to be there. And the second one later will be in Genesis 28. So if you weren't here the last two weeks, I'll tell you the story up till now very quickly. Uh, Our hero, Abram, uh, is the recipient of great promises from God. And because of those promises, he has just won a great military battle against all odds, like a David and Goliath kind of scenario, except multiplied over a bunch of people. He goes in, he wins, he comes back, and he meets this priest who blesses him. And then this is what happened. This is Genesis 14. Uh, we are going to start in verse 17. It says, then after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God most high. He blessed him and he said, blessed be the God of Abram, I'm sorry, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And here's the tithe. He gave him a tenth of all. So all the stuff he had gained, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all of that stuff. Even though we'll see later, he's going to give it all away. All right, now we turn to the second tithe. Keep a bulletin in Genesis 14 where we were. Flip a few pages ahead to Genesis chapter 28. Now we haven't gotten to this story yet. You may not be familiar with it. Uh, At this point, Abram has died. His grandson, Jacob, is the main character in the story now. He is the one that the promises are going to come true for. He is the one whose descendants will become the nation of Israel. He is in big trouble right now, though, because he has enraged his twin brother, and his twin brother means to hunt him down and kill him. That's especially bad news because his brother is a hunter by trade. And of all the people you don't want hunting you, a hunter is the one you really don't want hunting you. So he is on the run. Uh, He's trying to get away. He's out in the wilderness. uh, And here's what happens. I'm going to start in verse 11 of chapter 28. He came to a certain place. And he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head and he lay down at that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and he said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac and the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I do not know it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on my journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house 
and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. The words of the Lord. So we're going to go going back and forth between both of those stories today. Uh, it's hard sometimes to absorb two stories that quickly. So let me walk you through the relevant details of both of those stories. Uh, for Abram, as I said, he had just won a great battle against all odds. This battle was so great, or sorry, the army was so great that it had just defeated 11 cities, I think six one at a time, and then five cities all at once. And Abram had to go after that army with only 390. 19 men. Uh, he went, and because of God's promises to him, he was miraculously victorious. And so he's just filled with awe and wonder. I mean, God had promised this was going to happen, but it's one thing to know that God does things. It's another thing when you see God do an amazing thing. So he's watched his little small army win this great, huge battle, and he comes back full of awe and wonder, and this priest comes out and blesses him and says what is right. He says, blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. And so Abraham, almost impulsively, with no precedent before him, him, takes a tenth of the spoil and gives it to Melchizedek the priest who is priest in Salem which will become Jerusalem uh, now this is the spoil from the battle now that uh, that army was of course so great it was about to destroy Abram and it had 11 cities worth of loot that it was carrying around and so when he sprung on that army and they all fled and ran away he had 11 cities worth of loot that was all his own so he went from almost destroyed to very rich and very blessed very quickly. Uh, so this would be like if the, you know, 11 cities here in the United States, we got the loot from all of them to divide between us, right? He's going to divide 11 cities worth of stuff between 319 men. Can you imagine if we got, you know, New York's museums and Chicago's museums and all the jewels and everything that are in everybody's closets in LA and in Phoenix and in all these cities and we just divide them between us. That's the level of riches he is stumbling across as the loot of 11 cities is now his, so he's gone from almost destroyed to rich, and he says, uh, I'm giving a tenth of this to the Lord, and he gives it at the place of worship, you know, at uh, Melchizedek's doorstep, saying this can go to God's house. Similar thing happens for Jacob. Uh, he has just enraged his twin brother. He's a chef, and his twin brother is a hunter. Uh, now, chefs can do cool things with knives, but if I have to pick in a fight between a chef and a hunter, I'm going with the hunter, right? And so Jacob is on the run. He has nothing. I mean, he's not taking hardly anything with him. Uh, he's out there. He sleeps on a rock because he doesn't have anything else to sleep on. Uh, he's out there. and He goes from seeing the rage in his brother's eyes to seeing God most high speak to him in a dream. And God says, I will keep you. I'll preserve you. And where you're going, you're going to become wealthy, and then I'm going to bring you back to this land, and you're going to multiply. And so he knows now, because of God's promises, that where he is going, he's going to become very wealthy. And he does. He, he, he amasses great wealth where he goes. He spends, I think, 14 years there. Uh, then he says, well, if the Lord is going to do all of this, well, when I come back here, like he says, and uh, here is the pillar that I am putting here as the marker so I know where it is, this place will become a house of God one day, and I'm going to give a tenth of all the stuff that I amass on this journey. I'm going to give a tenth to this house. So both of them then 
are amazed at what God has done for them or is about to do for them. Like just full of joy and wonder and wow, God is doing all of this for me. Taking them from near destruction to just blessed upon blessed. And their response in their heart, full of joy, is to say, we're given a tenth of all this, and they do it at the house of worship. Uh, And in that, we find roots that will become a trunk and branches in the rest of the scripture. We find the seeds of the tithe, the beginning of the 4,000-year tradition of God's people tithing. And the most important thing that we find there is the right reason to tithe. Uh, They give a tenth of everything because they are amazed and joyful at what God has done for them. That's the right reason to give your tithe when you give it. Uh, What they do more fully is they are amazed at God moving them from destruction to great blessing and full of joy they give a tithe at the house of worship. That's what a tithe is. That's the foundation of it there to be amazed at God moving you from near destruction to great blessing to full of joy give a tenth at the house of worship, a tenth of everything at the house of worship. That's what a tithe is. And when we tithe as Christians, as sons of Abraham and Jacob, 4,000 years later, we do it for the same reason. So there were three parts to that definition of tithing that I gave you earlier. Uh, Number one, it's in response to God moving you from destruction to great blessing. Number two, it's a tenth of everything. And then number three, it's given at the house of worship. Uh, Let me break down each one of those for you, and then we'll look in Israel's law for a little bit and see how those things were true in Israel's law too. And then we'll ask the hard question, which is here we are 4,000 years later, most of us don't tithe in sheep and oxen. How do we apply this stuff today? Like what are we gonna do today with this stuff? So breaking the definition down first, uh, we see that it is a response to God's rescue and blessing, right? Abraham sees 319 men win a battle so handedly that the other army flees and they chase them halfway across the world, it feels like. He's amazed at that. Jacob is amazed that God is delivering him from his brother Esau. And in both cases, they gain great riches in doing so too. So they move from nearly destroyed to blessed and they give. That amazement, that joy in the heart is the reason behind a tithe. And it's not a tithe if it's not done with that sort of heart that says, God has blessed me so much. Secondly, in both cases, it is emphasized that they gave a tenth of all of it, uh, which basically means there's not a deduction system like there is with your taxes, right? Like you can take this off and take that off and you give a tenth of what's left after that. There there isn't any system of that. No, Abram, it says, gives a tenth of all, it says particularly. Uh, And Jacob as well says, I will give you a tenth of everything that I get. So there's an emphasis placed on it being a tenth of everything. And then finally, it's done in both cases there toward a house of worship. Uh, Melchizedek is priest in Salem, which will become Jerusalem, and that is where God's house of worship is going to be. Uh, For Jacob, it's a house of worship that doesn't even exist yet. Like he puts a pillar there and says, God's going to be worshiped here, and when I come back, I'm going to give to that. I'm going to have this thing built. I'm going to give a tenth of all that I can to it. And sure enough, later on, some of you know the history of Israel well. You know they split into two kingdoms. If you're familiar with that, the northern kingdom worshiped at Bethel, where Jacob was, and the southern kingdom worshiped where Abram was in Jerusalem. So they're doing it toward the house of worship. Now, some of that is clearer in those stories. 
stories, and other aspects of it are not quite so clear. And so what we ought to do then is kind of look through the next phase in the Bible's history, which is the law, and see if these things are consistent in the law, and we'll find that they are. So the way the story continues is uh, Jacob does go off in another land. He does become wealthy there. Uh, He comes back to the land that we call Israel today, the land of Canaan. Uh, God blesses him greatly there. He has uh, so much stuff. He has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. They wind up multiplying greatly so much that there are enough people to cover the earth. But because of famine, before they multiply much, they have to go to Egypt uh, so that they can just live and survive. And they settle in Egypt for a while. Uh, But what happens is they multiply so much, so quickly, just as God promised they would, that the Egyptians get nervous and decide to enslave them so that they can keep them down, so that this quickly growing family and nation doesn't take over us. We better take over them now. So they enslave the people of Israel, uh, the sons of Jacob. For 400 years, those people live in slavery until God sends his servant Moses and sends Aaron to redeem them out of slavery. So they're rescued out of slavery and it's very dramatic it's a wonderful story on the way out the egyptians lavished them with gold and jewelry and ornaments and all kinds of wonderful riches so just like that they go from being slaves to being wealthy and you're you're running out of the nation and people are throwing gold necklaces on you this is the scene that it paints right so now these people have become very wealthy they're on the run They go through the desert for a little bit. They come up to the shore of the Red Sea because that's where God leads them. And they're just kind of looking at the shore going, well, where do we go now? And then they turn back and realize that the Egyptian army with horses and chariots is coming after them to pursue them because they've changed their minds and they want them back now. So they're stuck between a coming army and the Red Sea. And there's, I don't know, maybe a million of them at the time. And so they can't just quickly get around the thing. There's nothing they can do. What are they going to do? The army's getting closer and closer, and God dramatically parts the sea in two and rescues them from destruction at the hand of the Egyptians. They walk across the bottom of the sea as dry land. They get to the other side. The army comes after them, and the Lord crashes down the sea on the army that's chasing after them. Then they go through the desert, and they come back to this land where these stories took place today. Uh, The Lord gives it to them, and he gives them a law to build their nation upon. And part of what he says is, I am giving you this land, this good land. They call it a land of milk and honey, a land that prospers, a land that produces a lot of fruit and a lot of great stuff. You can raise your sheep and your oxen there. It's good land. It's going to produce good for you. And as I give it to you, all of the stuff that you get out of this land I give you, I want you to give a tenth of it back to me. He says, I want you to take it to the place of worship and give a tenth back to me, and you're to rejoice there as you do it. And so that's the groundwork of the tithe there. He's giving them the land, making them blessed. Uh, Let me read you just one passage where he talks about this. There are many of them, but you'll see these concepts just in these words. This is Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27. We'll throw it on the screens for you too. He says, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which uh, comes out of your field every year. 
You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. That's Jerusalem where the sanctuary was. The tithe of your grain, the tithe of your new wine, the tithe of your oil, and the firstborn of your herds and your flocks so that you may learn to fear the Lord always. Can you see the emphasis on everything? Like all the stuff you get out of the land, you tithe on it all. So then in verse 24, If the distance is too great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you. I mean, if you imagine a tenth of everything you get in a year, all the sheep, all the everything, trying to tote that 100 miles to Jerusalem would be kind of tough. So if it's too far and you can't do it, here's what to do. Then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, that's the house of worship at Jerusalem. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And also you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. So. What they would do then is uh, once a year, you would survey everything that your land had given you. If it gave you 10 sheep, you'd take one of them. If it gave you 20 pounds of barley, you'd take a pound, two pounds of the barley. You'd get a tenth of it all together. It'd probably be like a couple school buses worth of stuff. And so you can't take all this to Jerusalem easily. So you exchange it for money. Then you go to Jerusalem, you buy stuff. And then you just go have this huge feast in the temple. And you just rejoice before God with the Levites. Uh, the Levites were the tribe who got no land, so they didn't get any produce, and so you left the rest of the tithe there, and the Levites lived off of the tithe for the rest of the year. And that's the way the system works. So you can see the same emphases there, emphasis on a tenth of everything, emphasis on I have done this, I have given this land to you, and so you give it back, uh, and even an emphasis on going to the house of worship to do it. Uh, so those patterns carry over, and for them, that wonderful moment where you part with a tenth of everything you made that year was a highlight in their year. It was a great feast and a time of joy. So this would be like, you know, if you take your salary, divide it by 10, uh, some of you give weekly, monthly, and it's a small number every week, not smaller number every week or month. Imagine if you saved up for the whole year and you just did the whole tithe at one point for the whole year and you wrote one check, right? That's the moment they're having there at the temple where it's like the whole year's worth of stuff. And that for them is one of the most joyful moments of the year. And the Lord says, you're to go there and you are to rejoice at what I have done for you. And why not? Because you're looking at a number, right? That all you do is add a zero on the end of it and you say, God gave us that much this year. That's, this is incredible. So they rejoice before the Lord God in what he has done for them. And the same reason for tithing carries over to the New Testament. And it just plainly says, God loves a cheerful giver. That's something that he adores and loves. He's rescued us from terrible destruction and he has blessed us richly. And he, and he rejoices when we look at him with joy in our hearts and say, you know what, just like Abram and just like Jacob, like they weren't commanded to do this, but they did it anyway. My heart wants to give to the Lord and it does it with joy. That is the true spirit and the true reason behind tithing. Now in the New Testament, 
One of the interesting things is that you don't read about Christians tithing in the New Testament. You read about Jews tithing sometimes and Pharisees tithing. Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees for doing it wrongly, but you don't read about Christians doing it. And in fact, you don't even read a clear command on the church today. Uh, and so the interesting thing that happens is you've got Abram and Jacob setting the precedent early, right? They are not commanded to tithe. The Lord doesn't tell them to. They just do out of the happiness of their hearts. Then you've got Israel who is commanded to tithe, right? And the funny thing is, they almost never did. They hardly ever kept those laws. So much so that later on, a prophet rebukes them and says, you are robbing me by not bringing these tithes to the store. Like, I told you to do this and you didn't do it. And now we get to the New Testament where Christians are not particularly commanded to tithe. We're not given a percentage that we're supposed to give. We're just told to be generous. And here we are 2,000 years later and consistently through the church's history, Christians have tithed. It's like we're back to Abram and Jacob mode. It's like we're back to not being forced to do it, not giving under compulsion, but just saying, man, God gave me so much. I can't wait to give back. So in a sense, we're back to the mode they were in of not being commanded to do it, but doing it anyway. And so many people sitting around you have functioned with that spirit. It's not that they read a chapter and verse that says you must tithe at your local church. It's that the Lord has moved them and made them say, God is good to me. And I just feel like it would be wrong if I don't give back to them like this in my conscience. I just want to do it. And so people give. That is the reason that Christians give. Now, these principles are all over the New Testament, but I'm just going to give you uh, one spot where many of them appear. This is 2 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 7 and 8. And this is not about regular giving, this is about a special gift. Uh, I think it's Paul who's going to come by or he's going to send somebody by to pick up a gift from one church that they're storing up to give to another church that's in need. And here's what he says. He says, each one of you must give as he has purposed in his heart. So in other words, you have chosen the amount to give. God has not prescribed it for you. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, right? So the amount's not commanded and the spirit is supposed to be not, not being told to do it, but wanting to do it. For God loves a cheerful giver. So it's done with joy, right? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So the gift still comes out of God's abundance that he's given to you. It's still done with cheer. And that's the heart behind it. So the principles behind Jacob and Abram's tithes still apply today. It's to be given with joy out of God's great blessing to you. And so, if we're going to tithe rightly, we have to spend time then considering the great rescue God has given us and the great riches that he has lavished us with. As I said before, Abram and Jacob were both staring down great threats, right? God, God rescued from them and their hearts are just jumping with, God rescued me from that and he gave me all of this. And the same is true for us. We look back on what we were saved from and our hearts are just leaping with songs that we're singing and baptisms and all kinds of stuff because look what God did for us. And so I'm just gonna read to you one passage that speaks really soberly of what we were rescued from, of just the stark and difficult future that we were rescued from. This is Revelation 20. Uh, this is the end of all history where everything is headed. Uh, and if you believe it and trust in it, it, it's terrifying. Here's what it says. 
It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and there was no place for them. So this is the throne of the sovereign God over all the universe who is about to judge the entire universe and everyone, heaven and earth, the angels, everyone's trying to run from him in fear, but you can't. He's just like, whoop, come here. It's time for judgment, right? And he says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, so it doesn't matter if you're great or small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So this is us whenever it is that the Lord comes back and history meets its final end. Uh, and we are called from our graves to go before the Lord in judgment. And there is a book of everything we've ever done. And it's read, like the story of our life, the stuff we did in public, the stuff we did in secret, the stuff that the people sitting next to you don't know about, all just read right out there before the sovereign God. And then verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have then the record of everything you've done read aloud all of your life judged and found wanting all of your life judged and found wicked before god and the only way that we can avoid being thrown into this eternal lake of fire is if our name is written in the book of life that's the only way that we're getting out of this jam that we're in and so the question on all of our hearts then is, how do you get your name in that book of life? Like, that's what I need. I need my name in that book of life. Because we, I mean, I think you see the imagery, a lake of fire, a place of eternal torment and destruction. Uh, it says earlier of it that the smoke rises up forever and ever. Like forever is not long enough. It's forever and ever. Uh, how do we get our names written in that book of life so that we can be spared from this? Well, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life, and the Lamb is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who chose willingly to die to pay for sins. That's the message that we rejoice in every Sunday morning here. He died to pay for sins. He rose from the dead to conquer death uh, so that we don't have to fear death anymore. And there we find, if we are willing to trust in him, like we can't earn salvation from this fate that we've got, but if we're willing to trust in him, he will rescue us from us. He will write our names in the book of life. And when you get called up to judgment there, the first question is, is his name in the book of life? Is her name in the book of life? And if the answer is yes, then it's okay. Well, we'll spare all the rest then. Come into my kingdom. And then, so dramatic rescue, I think we all agree on that. Then the real crazy thing is not only are we spared from the eternal lake uh, and staring at the throne in fear, but now all of a sudden we're given holy righteous garments and told, come stand next to the throne because I have a place for you in this kingdom now. 
And so, so from sudden destruction all the way moved over to now we get to stand beside the throne and now we get a high spot in his kingdom. He adopts us as sons. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. We get a great inheritance in his name. So just like Abram and just like Jacob, we go from facing this huge threat to being given great riches and just being lavished when, with more than we could ever understand on this side of heaven. And so when we see their hearts leap and say, I'm giving, like I am giving out of this abundance and blessing, that's what moves our hearts to say, this is why we give. If you're new here and you're wondering, why do all these people around me give so much money? I don't understand why people give money to the church. That's why. Uh, it's not because people like me stand up and wag our fingers at folks. I've been here a year. This is the first time that I've ever talked about giving. Uh, last year, I didn't talk about it once. I just preached the gospel and giving went up. Why does that happen? Because that's what the gospel does for people. It moves us toward generosity, moves us toward service. It moves us to do all the things that we do for him. That is the heart behind a true tithe. So let's move then uh, to some practical things. Some of you have practical questions about tithing, like should I do it like this, should I do it like that? Um, I'll give you the best answers I can from the Bible, keeping in mind that since it's not a prescribed law, some of the particulars aren't clear and so you have to use wisdom. And so the first question people are gonna ask is, okay, so do I have to tithe or not? It kinda sounded like you said I didn't, but it kinda sounded like you said I did, right? Like you're making me feel like I have to, but you're telling me I don't have to. And if that's how you feel, then you're getting it. Like I think that's the way the Lord moves us. He doesn't explicitly command us in the New Testament that Christians must tithe. Uh, if you want me to find chapter and verse on that, it's not there, we can't find it. But he has consistently moved Christians for 2,000 years now to do it. And I believe he's done that in response to the greatness of the gospel. And so if you feel a tug on your heart like you ought to be doing it, that's probably a good and godly thing. So that's the clearest answer I can give you on that. No but is probably the best answer on that. Uh, you may have practical questions. Uh, some will ask, okay, uh, if let's say I've resolved in my heart that I want to tithe to my church. Uh, is it before taxes? Is it after taxes? Do I tithe on investment income? Like, how does all that work? The best guidance we can get there from the Bible is that from the beginning, the principle has always been a tenth of all. Uh, in the land, it was a tenth of all that the land gives you, right? So anything that you are putting something in and a return comes out of it, just like a farmer would with the land, whether that is pre-tax income or investments, I think to call it a tithe, you would want to do it on that. Now again, tithing isn't commanded, so there is a lot of freedom here, but to be a tithe, I think we would say it needs to be a tenth of all because that precedent has been there for 4,000 years now. Uh, some will ask as well, uh, do I have to give it to my church, right? What if I, I mean, there's so many riches here in the States, like our church has plenty, could I give it overseas instead? Like, you know, do, do I have to give it to my church? Uh, and again, the Lord gives us great freedom with these things, but in the tradition of tithing, if you want to tithe, uh, the pattern has been for 4,000 years now to your house of worship, right? Abram gave it to the priest at Jerusalem. Jacob said it's going to the house here. Israelites brought it to the house of worship. So the pattern then is coming to the house of 
worship and giving it there. Uh, and finally, now that we're in this brave new technology world, some of you are asking, well, can I, get on, can I give online or not? Like, you said I have to bring it to the house of worship, right? Like, is it okay if I'm like clacking keys on my keyboard and it just goes digitally like that? Uh, and the best answer we can give there is that, you know, we have online giving at our church. We, we allow that. We set that up for folks. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to each way. Uh, no matter what you do, it goes to the house, right? So it's not like the way it gets there doesn't seem to be dictated in the Bible. Um, let me tell you what I think are the advantages and disadvantages of each one. Uh, if you give here in the church building, uh, you get to do it as part of the worship service. And for most of us, that is a very sweet thing. Uh, my wife and I are digital people. We do everything on our phones when it comes to banking, except for our giving, where we still get out the checks and actually use this ancient pen and like write a check. And, with that, and the reason we do that is because it's meaningful to us to do it in the worship service. It's not commanded, it's just meaningful for us. There is, however, a great advantage to giving online, and that is that you get to do it in secret. And the Lord loves and he rewards greatly when you give in secret. And when you think about it, there are people that do things online that they keep secret that they don't want let out, right? Some people do terrible things in secret online. What a testimony if the secret thing you do online is giving money, giving things away. And when you're kind of, when all your secrets are let out on the last day, it's like, ooh, I wonder what that guy was doing alone. Oh, he was giving away money. Oh, well, that's not that's not very dramatic, is it? No, like some people do do things like that. Um, but what a testimony if the secret thing you do when no one is looking is, is giving. Just fantastic. So those are the advantages. Uh, some people also find it very important. Like if I'm going to give a gift, I want every penny of it to go to the place I'm giving. And if that's the heart you've got at, at it, uh, what you need to know is that there is like a one or 2% that's skimmed off the top if you give online. And so if you just don't like that, if you're like, no, I don't want 98% of my gift, I want 100% of it going, then you probably shouldn't give online because there's credit card fees and all that kind of stuff that goes on there. So there are the practical matters that I think some of these texts help us speak to. Uh, may the Lord lead you in all of these things. Let me tell you a story that I think kind of drives this big point home though, because the big thing we want here the big thing I want for you uh, is giving that is done in the right spirit. Uh, this church gives, like I don't need to push giving in our church, but I do need pastorally to make sure that we're giving for the right reasons. So what I want for you guys every Sunday morning is when you do the thing that you're always doing, that you're doing it with joy and you're saying, God has richly, richly blessed me and I'm so glad that I get to do this. Because if you do that, then we're reaping up eternal reward for ourselves in heaven. So I would rather our giving get chopped in half but every gift be done with the right spirit, then see our giving double and see it done hypocritically. Because I don't think the Lord would bless that mountain of cash that we would have if it were given hypocritically. So that's what I want for us. Uh, let me tell you a story that I think uh, illustrates that. Uh, historic biographers have a really hard job. They have to look back into history, find one person, and just from all the records about this person, try to figure out like what kind of person was he? What was she really like behind the scenes? And when you're dealing with someone who has been dead for 100 or 200 or 300 years, you can't just go ask their spouse what was their personality like? You know, what were they like behind the scenes? Uh, it doesn't work that way. All you have are these formal records that tell you about their contributions to the city around them and what they did, and you just can't figure out what they're really like. And so one biographer tells the story 
of his attempt to write uh, the story of a, a particular Duke of Edinburgh that he wanted to write a bio on. And he said, I just could not get to the bottom of like, what was this guy like? Like, I know what he did, but what kind of person was he? Uh, and he searched and searched and did research and couldn't find anything. And finally, he says, I made a big discovery that gave me a window into his heart. He had stumbled across the Duke's check registers, all of his financial records. And now he got to see behind the scenes what's really important to this person. Like, where does he put his money? How does he make money? How does he spend it? What's going on? That was, he said, all the window I needed into this guy's lifestyle, into his pattern. And from that, I could do all the research that I needed to learn everything that I needed to know about him. It just speaks to the truth that what's going on on the inside comes out on the outside. One of the ways that happens that gets written down forever is what we do with our money. Uh, That's what needs to be happening when we are giving and tithing. And that's the main point today. Uh, it's, it's not that you should do it, it's that when you do it, it should be done with the right spirit that says, God has been so good to me. Let's pray.